Good evening and welcome to another session of Colton Court. I'm Gerald Colton, your host, and we will take the next hour to look inside the world of the sports and business aspects that controls today's world of sports. I'm here helped and assisted by Tucker Colton. Good evening, Tucker. Good evening, Gerald, and to all of our listeners out there. So as always, Tucker, there's a whole lot of issues that happened this week in sports. And we are in July, which is in general a little bit of lull in the sports world. There are no NBA or NHL games. We have the offseason transactions going on free agency. And the NFL is really on vacation. The entire league takes off this month until training camps resume in late July. And then we get rolling with the NFL exhibition games and the season. So All that really goes on in general in the four major sports at this time of year is baseball. And we still got two and a half months to go in that season. So people aren't paying all that close attention to it. And there's a hole, there's a hole to fill. And that void has been filled. And we're going to discuss some of the things that fill that void. On today's show, we're also going to be speaking with a couple of real experts in their field later, later on during the show. We're going to be visited by Joel Maxey, who's the associate professor and head of sports management at Drexel University. He's also the president of International Associates. Association of Sports Economists. He is a really world leader in the world of sports economy. We're going to discuss discuss some of the sports we don't necessarily always talk about on this show. And then later, we're going to be visited by Jim Manos, who was a recently departed director of player personnel for the Buffalo Bills, who's been involved in scouting in the NFL and uh, managing players the player personnel side for a club for a long time and he's going to give us an insight as to the inner workings of nfl front offices but we're going to start today tucker by looking at some of the things that are going on currently in the world of sports and the things that happen all the time but are specifically relevant today one of the things that has hit the news is that the houston rockets are for sale the houston rockets are owned by les alexander les alexander bought the rockets in 1993 so approximately 24 years ago, and he bought them for $85 million. The Rockets are now valued at $1.6 to $2 billion 24 years later. So his $85 million investment in 1993, which he yielded championships, he won the championship with the Houston Rockets in both 94 and 95. Those are the years that Michael Jordan was playing minor league baseball, and the Rockets, led by Akeem Olajuwon, capitalized won two championships. And now... 24 years later, he's selling them at 20-fold, I'm sorry, 200-fold, his original investment. Quite an investment by Les Alexander. We'll see who steps up. Yeah, that'll definitely be interesting to see. One thing that is definitely in his favor is that he has James Harden, a 28-year-old perennial MVP candidate and arguably one of the best players in the league. So whoever's looking to buy, it's not like this is some team that doesn't make the playoffs or needs a whole makeover. This is a team with a solid core. They just traded for Chris Paul. They also have some other younger guys who are coming up, and they could really be a competitor for years to come, compete with the Warriors, compete with other teams. They have an awesome general manager in Daryl Morey, and who knows what could happen if take ownership of the team. Well, you know, one of the business principles that always applies to good investments are buy low and sell high. And there are a few things working for Les Alexander right now that that worked also when he purchased the team. When he purchased the team in 1993, one of the problems in the NBA was cash flow. The team's values have always appreciated. In all sports, they've all gone up all through time. We've talked about that in the past. And now they've gone up appreciably. However, in 1993, the cash flow for an NBA team wasn't necessarily good. And the Rockets were owned by the Maloof brothers at that point who wanted to sell the club. And he he capitalized on the fact that they had not great cash flow. Bought them now, some 24 years later, 
it is really selling high because the Houston Rockets have assembled quite per, quite a good group of personnel. They have the runner-up of the MVP and James Harden, a superstar. They've added arguably the best point guard in the NBA and Chris Paul. There are rumors that Carmelo Anthony could be going there, and they're trying to stock up and really make a run at the Warriors and a chance for a title. So you're selling them at a point where they're really popular and their value has gone up. Another thing that has helped NBA team values was the sale of the Los Angeles Clippers a few years ago when Donald Sterling made his really unfortunate racist comments, was forced to sell and sold the Clippers to Balmer for really three times what they were estimated to be valued at. They were worth about $700 million according to Forbes' estimate. They were sold for $2 billion, and as a result, all teams' values went up. Yeah, I, I'm really interested to see what this bidding war is going to bring. And of course, Houston isn't LA, but Houston's still a pretty desirable destination to own a sports team and for players to come and want to play. It's not a bad city like Cleveland or Milwaukee. And obviously, there's some players who are from there and want to go back. But players with no affiliation to the city, Houston's pretty desirable for them to come to. So it's attractive to players, it's a pretty good franchise. Good players, good staff, good coaches. So who knows what could happen with this? Houston is actually an incredible city, Tuck. It's um, according to how they measure markets, television markets, and things like that. Houston is now the fourth leading market. It's fourth or fifth in the entire country because you've got New York, L.A., Chicago, Philadelphia is in that mix, the Bay Area is in that mix, but Houston, from total population in in the city itself, and it's a huge city, has actually moved to number four. And it's a city that actually has three different downtowns. It's got their downtown, it's got the gallery, it's got the hospital, and it's spread out, and it's a pretty cool, vibrant city with good climate. So it really is an attractive area. There's another thing that adds to the value of the Houston Rockets as an overall franchise, and that is they drafted Yao Ming number one overall many years ago. Not too many years ago, but a while back. And Yao Ming's career, unfortunately, was cut short. But as a result of Yao Ming's presence and the, the picking the number one overall pick in the NBA coming from China, they became a huge cult following in China. And I wouldn't say even more than cult. I mean, the entire nation of China would watch Yao Ming's basketball games. Now, even though the fact they were played like in the wee hours of the morning over there because of a tremendous time difference, but Houston became very, very popular over there. And they've just signed another guy this year. I think his name's John Z to play and another like seven two big man from China is supposed to be a pretty good player is coming over. So they have really capitalized on that overseas market and their popularity, which helps with merchandise and some other things that also can help the value of the franchise. Yeah, and that's something that we really touch on here is how there's so many different ways to make money in this industry and this business. And teams like that, where I remember when Yao was playing and they would have the stanchion of the net in Chinese letters. And obviously people in America, most people couldn't read that, but the people that were watching over in China probably loved that and said, that's my team, that's uh, that's our company or whatever it was. Huge marketing advantage for the Rockets to do ad sales that can appear in their broadcast because of the popularity in China. Exactly right, Tucker. They can really add value. So not a bad franchise for someone to buy. If you've got an extra $2 billion lying around, (laughs) give Les Alexander a call. I'm sure he'd be happy to hear from you. Let's turn now to another thing that takes place during this, what I call summer void or little emptiness in the sports everyday world. And that is a phenomenon that's been taking place increasingly over the years and hit, hit to me, record, record numbers this year. And that is the NBA Summer League. The NBA Summer League is basically a bunch of exhibition, almost rec league based basketball games. Most teams will only have a couple of the guys that are playing the summer league on their NBA rosters, if that. Here in Philadelphia, where we're based out of, the Sixers had their first-round pick, their number-one pick overall, Mark Fultz, go down after a couple of games. He missed 
the end of their summer league in Utah, then they switched over to Vegas where he didn't play at all. The only player playing for the Sixers that might be wearing a uniform this year was Firkin uh, Korkmaz. Cabarro will play. And, 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 oh, and they also had Cabarro, who's going into his second year, who will play also. But other than that, Pretty much the entire roster will not be Philadelphia 76ers. Yet people would tune in and watch them as they played in their practice uniforms and played the rest of the league. Of course, this league in particular drew interest because of the entrance of Lonzo Ball into the league and L.A. being somewhat close to Vegas and a lot of people coming out and making a nice little trip to Vegas to watch Lonzo Ball play. But I've never saw so much attention to the Summer League. We now have it being broadcast, of course, on NBA TV and ESPN. It really has become a nice little following for basketball fans looking for something to fill that summer void. I mean, it's exciting. Basketball is an awesome sport to watch in any capacity, and that's something that we'll get into in a little bit with the Big Three that was recently in Philadelphia. But as far as basketball goes, there's an excitement and. The only one team wins a championship. That was the Warriors last year, and they're probably pretty big favorites to win it again this year. But for Sixers fans, for Nets fans, for Laker fans, people who had teams who didn't play too well, and in our case, in the Lakers' case, had pretty high draft picks, it's exciting to be able to watch these young prospects play. And I know Lonzo Ball's tearing it up statistically and performing well, and it's exciting for fans to be able to root for something. But I think you're, you hit the nail on the head, and, and it's the excitement of basketball, and that as a television sport, even watching summer basketball league games, I think a lot of people would rather watch that than baseball, it, it, with the... It, younger generation and coming fans and things like that. I mean, we've also got X Games on at the same time. Things that were not traditionally things that were watched, but that younger fans may be more attracted to than Major League Baseball, even in regular season games. So it's been good for the NBA. I think it shows the popularity of the NBA. And one of the things that you always want to look for for a sports league is the fact that you have the infusion of new blood. And this draft class in particular seems pretty exciting. And it seems like the future of the NBA, at least the media future is pretty darn good yeah it seems like it's really good and there's always storylines that come out I know the Mavericks had a pretty good I know they lost yesterday in the semifinal to the Lakers but they had a guy from China named Ding and he played unbelievable he actually had MVP chance during one of their games a little premature, but after all, Magic Johnson said Lonzo Ball's going to the Hall of Fame where his name's, his number's going up in the rafters before he's played one game. So the bars are pretty high for these kids coming in. Yeah, but on top of that, it's just something for fans to attach to. And now there's this whole fan base in Dallas that is rooting for this guy that I'm a pretty big NBA fan I never heard of before this summer league. And now he has this fan base and... Maybe he signs on somewhere, and who knows? So, you know, it's pretty an exciting time in the NBA. you got the infusion of new talent, some switching around on some, some teams and, and really gearing up, and everyone has already conceded the 2018 championship to the Warriors. But I don't think that's the case. I think that we're going to have a potentially very exciting season and a lot of challengers. Yeah, well, something with this past season that was not not as exciting as it could have been is that a lot of – storylines kind of failed that flailed out middle of the season fizzled out and this next season there's so much potential in so many different areas you have so many different teams across the league that have hope in different areas that have players that people are expecting to play great these big contracts guys are getting paid a lot of money now it'll be interesting to see how well they perform off of that so there's just so much going into the season that really might be more than any season prior and I want to touch base on one thing before we hear from uh, the professor, and that is, as a sports agent, I try to give insight on the show 
to what sometimes goes on in contract negotiations and in representing players. And I represented an NHL player by the name of Dinah Zubris who had a long, almost 20-year NHL career that just ended after the 2016 season. He did not play this past season. Um, he started his career here in Philadelphia and wound up finishing his career in the Stanley Cup Finals in the 2016 Stanley Cup Finals for the San Jose Sharks, who lost at that point to Pittsburgh. But Dinah is originally from Lithuania, um, speaks Russian, played over in Russia during the NHL lockout several years back. And I just got a call from from a club over in the KHL, the Russian Hockey League today, about him maybe coming out of retirement and joining them. And I bring this up because there are these worldwide opportunities for some athletes. And here he is, retired for a year and done with his NHL career, but could potentially make some good money overseas still at this point. Yeah, and that's interesting, but there's so many leagues and so many different sports, and obviously America has, in the four major sports, baseball, football, basketball, hockey, has the biggest professional leagues, but there's basketball leagues all across Europe who have their own tournament in the EuroLeague, and the hockey in Russia and other countries over there. There really are great overseas opportunities for players in basketball, hockey, and baseball, not so in football, and we've touched on that, how it's really NFL or nothing pretty much for most of these guys. But we're going to switch switch gears right now, and we're going to bring in a real sports economic expert. We've got on the line Joel Maxey, the associate professor and head of sports management at Drexel University, as well as the president of the International Association of Sports Economists. Welcome, Dr. Maxey. Thank, thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you, Joe. It's great to be here. It's re- to contribute. really good to, to have you. Um, I'm accompanied and co-hosted on the show by Tucker Colton, who I know you're familiar with. I do know Tucker, yeah. We've had a few conversations about sports over the past couple months. Yeah, Tucker, a recent graduate of Drexel University and uh, pretty fond of you as a professor. Dr. Maxey, I want to talk to you about a a few different things. Um, We we talk about the four major sports mostly on the show, but I know you're you're an expert in all sorts of areas. The first thing I want to touch on, something that just happened in Philadelphia, was the presence of the big three. Did you pay attention at all to uh, have you have you been noticing that league? Yeah, I have, and in fact, I, I got a actually had a call uh, about that last week as well. So, so yes, I, I wasn't able to I, I wasn't able to get down to the Wells Fargo Center to see the competition, but uh, I think it's an it's, it's an interesting idea. We'll have to see how it plays out. Uh, upstart leagues and new sports have a tough goal of it. Generally, I mean, if you look at the, you know, all all the all the ones that have tried to get up and going, whether they're rival leagues to the to the regulars or or new sports and new sports, it's it's not easy. There's a lot of competition for the customers entertainment dollars. But I think this is an, to me, it, it's a little bit like the senior tours in golf and, and tennis, which have had some success. Uh, I don't think it's going to rival the NBA or any of the big four major leagues revenue-wise, but. Um, uh, it's got some star power for sure, especially here in Philly with Iverson and, and Dr. J as a coach. So we'll see, what, we'll see how it goes. You know, I, I I did go down to it because I was I was interested in seeing it. Plus, uh, one of my former clients, Rick Mahorn, is one of the coaches, and it was a chance to visit with some old friends. And um, when I first heard about this league, was which was formed by Ice Cube and a couple of investors, 
I thought no way. I thought it was too gimmicky. I thought nobody would want to watch these guys play ball. And I have been pleasantly surprised at the product and, and the entire concept of the league. I mean, they really came up with a novel idea. The, the failure of other sports leagues, rival sports leagues, is that they do potentially try to compete. They've got a whole different model here. And rather than look to different cities to support franchises or clubs, they're just doing it as a one-time event as they pop around the country. And as you mentioned, like Allen Iverson and Dr. J had tremendous appeal in Philadelphia. And they can do such things all across the country and present these guys who are still pretty darn good basketball players. And, and I was Really surprised as well as pleased. And they also combined a uh, little hip hop stuff. They had Fat Joe perform. And, and like I said, Ice Cube's a big part of the league. So I think they're on to something. Sure. I, yeah, I like their model. I, I think that, you know, it's kind of the old fashioned barnstorming idea where you go from city to city with big stars. I mean, the NBA is a star driven league anyway. So these guys still have a, that star appeal. And, and of course, that's how golf and tennis operate. I think it's good. I think it's a good model. The more the more I saw, the more I read about. It. And again, I didn't get down there, but I, I understand they had like fifteen thousand people in Brooklyn uh, the first or second weekend. And so, I, it, it's in the summer, so it's not going head to head. It's kind of a you know baseball's a big competition, and it's a completely different sport than baseball. So, I I'm optimistic. I like their I like what they're doing, and and I, I haven't had the chance to get firsthand like you have, but I'm I'm, I'm interested to see it next time it comes. I think. Awesome. Hey, it's Tucker. Thank you again for joining us. Um, so yeah, I have thanks a, for having me, Tucker. Of course. Uh, I have a question regarding the NBA salary cap stuff, something that you taught me a lot about. And how do you think that it's kind of impacted teams so far? I know the most notable thing is probably the Celtics making the big addition of Hayward and then having to annex Bradley to save some room. Um, was that something that you could have foreseen, possibly? Well, I mean, any particular move is hard to foresee. But, I mean, what this did, obviously, so the, the camp jumped up a million or so, and I think the biggest jump ever. And that's, uh, as we talked about, you get the big influx of media money with the media deal that they signed. So, so players get their 48%, so that's got to push up the cap. And I think when you get a big increase like that, it, there's going to be some shakeups. Teams just have more, more to play with. So it increase, I mean, there's, there's more flexibility but also more teams bidding with more money so so i'm not surprised that there's some shakeups uh and some interesting things happening uh like the Celtics deal and uh, uh we'll see how it goes uh i mean it, it certainly benefits the whole league but definitely benefits the players uh, definitely um we're going to see players with, i think the thing is we're going to see players obviously with new contracts um and you'll, and you'll see some of this uh, unbalanced the players who were locked into longer term deals and some some of them i know for uh, so went that before they signed, but uh, uh, it will seem like new players with new contracts are overpaid. But they're just they're just actually in the right place at the right time. Big influx in revenue and the salary cap going up. We're speaking with Dr. Joel Maxey, associate professor and head of sports management at Drexel University and a world-renowned sports economist. Dr. Maxey, I want to switch gears to a couple of other areas of the sports world. I want to talk to you about the Olympics. Um, right now, there's rumors and in, in the news of Los Angeles receiving the bid for either the 2024-2028 Olympics. They've hosted Summer Olympics twice previously throughout the history of the modern Olympics. Um, obviously, over the past few Olympiads, it has seemed to almost be a curse to the country or the area that got the Olympics. What do you think about the economics of the Olympics and coming back to Los Angeles at this point? 
Well, that's that's a really good question, and right in the news because I I know last week they they decided to go with L.A. and Paris for the 24 and 28 Olympics, and I can't figure out the order yet, but but it looks like for sure L.A. is going to get it again. I I think that my my thoughts on this is that that the cost of hosting the Olympics has skyrocketed, and it's uh, billions and billions of dollars now. They've got to build all this infrastructure, state-of-the-art venues for everything, uh, and maybe upgrade infrastructure and things like that. To me, it seems like modern um, cities that have a lot of this already are the best. They're able to best absorb those costs, and they already have a lot of things in place. And obviously, that's going to be true of Los Angeles. They posted before um, a modern American city. Uh, but I think what we're seeing, though, is, is cities draw saying, well, we don't want to take this on anymore, even, even in the U.S. So, so, of course, L.A. ends up being in the mix because Boston dropped out. They had the American uh, bid going forward, and, and they had kind of a, almost a public revolt and, and dropped out of it. And I think a lot of uh, Hamburg, Germany did the same thing, and I think Budapest as well. So, so I think really people are starting to question, is this worth the cost? Because it ends up coming largely out of taxpayers' pockets. And we may not feel that. It's like, well, what else could have been done with that money, especially when you have you know, the issues in Brazil with public health and education and things like that. And now they're left with uh, some decaying Olympic facilities. Uh, and you can see that in other places that have hosted. So I think, I think there's a lot more questions about that. I wouldn't be surprised if we get to some point where they say, well, there's maybe two or three places that always host the games and we get out of this crazy bidding and building and rebuilding. But we'll, we'll have to see how that plays out. But um, um, I think as Americans, we can be kind of excited that it's coming to L.A. again. They put on good shows in the past, that's for sure. Awesome. And one last question. We know you got to get out of here and head to Ireland in the morning. But we know that you've done a lot of work in the past, and you taught me a lot about the unionization of college athletes. And we talk a lot about how they don't get paid for their hard work and what they do. So do you mind just speaking a little bit on that? Sure. Uh, yeah, I, I think we're at a bit of a standstill on that a little bit. I mean, there's, there's uh, well, first of all, as you know, there's a lot more attention being paid to the fact that these NCAA athletes are amateurs and not eligible for much payment uh, other than their living expenses, and, and it's become very clear that, wow, the, the revenue in major college sports, especially football and basketball, are really comparable to pro sports. And so, so they've got this nice situation if you're on the college side of it where you've got uh, very cheap labor. You want to look at it that way for, for a product that produces a lot of revenue. Um as for unionization, I mean, it seemed like there was a, a lot of progress made. Northwestern voted to unionize, and that went to the uh, regional NLRB there in 2014, I guess it was. They they okayed it, but then when it went, finally got to the national office in D.C., uh, they kind of punted it away. They didn't say they can't do it or can do it, but, but they let the, let the clock run out on it, basically. And I don't know what's going to I mean, you, you, we've had a change in political administration and the, the composition of the labor board is political. Um, Democrats tend to be more pro-union and, and Republicans more uh, anti-union or pro-management. Pro so I don't know how that might play out in the appointments to the board with, uh, in the Trump administration. We'll have to see. But I think in the, the big picture, though, is just that um, 
the public is, I mean, I think 10 years ago, if you brought up the idea, I think college athletes should get paid. Um, people would have said, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. And you don't hear that anymore. There's at least, you, I mean, you hear that sometimes, but there's a fairly uh, big and growing sentiment that there's something wrong with that model. Um, so we'll have to see how it plays out. There's, there's a lot of politics involved with this one, but I think people are more aware of the issue than they once were. Yeah, and I agree with you, you Dr. Maxey, in that um, there is less public outcry, and I think it's because of the fact that there's such an awareness now that college sports are such big business and that the coaches are making so much money and the universities are and the players who are really the product are not seeing the benefits of it that way, as well as the fact that, you know, in the in National Football League, for example, players are forced to participate in three years of NCAA football. They can't even, they don't even have the right to go make a living in that sport until thereafter, after they finish that. And it's almost it's slightly indentured servitude for them to have to do that. And as I speak to college athletes all the time, Although they get the scholarship, a lot of them do not come from great backgrounds. And really, despite the scholarship, they're stuck in cities where they really have nothing in their pocket while they're there they're as student athletes. It's a very difficult situation for a lot of them. Yeah, I agree. And I think finally attention is getting paid. I mean, you're absolutely right. It used to be that coaches were well paid, but we didn't know how much uh, really. And then these you know, well-publicized multi-million dollar contracts per year, which is in a way, I think, out of the scale of what we expect uh, employees at state universities to do, and and the you know comparing that to athletes that get nothing has has changed that dynamic. So, um, yeah, and and you're you're right too. I mean, the the uh, the unfairness of the you know kids from low lower income backgrounds being forced to to do this. There's no other industry really where that happens. So, yeah, I. Um, I I know you as a professor and, and head of the sports management program at Drexel are familiar with, with the salaries of professors and, and college university personnel. And at most universities, the highest paid person is the football and basketball coach. Yeah, absolutely. And in a lot of places, that's the highest paid public employee in the state. I know that. So <laughs> As a New Jersey taxpayer, I have seen those reports. Kind of crazy. Yeah. <laughs> so so there's, it's certainly very, very big business. And, and myself, I'd certainly like to see the, the players and the participants get some of the benefits from that at some point. Anyway, Dr. Maxey, we know you have to go and you're heading across the ocean to Ireland tomorrow. We appreciate you joining us so much and hopefully we can call you again. Yeah, absolutely. This is fun. I uh, look forward to the next time. Take awesome. Care, guys. Thank you again, Dr. Maxey. Take care. Have a safe trip and thank you. Thanks. That was thank Dr. You, Joel Maxey. Our pleasure. Thanks for thanks for being with us. And Dr. Joel Maxey, the associate professor and head of sports management at Drexel University. Something that has happened and there's been proliferation enough across universities in this country, Tucker, are those sports management programs. Yeah, and it's as a business student myself, it was very helpful to be able to take courses in sport management understudy in addition to my business program and got to learn about sports got to learn about business and hopefully one day i'll get to combine the two and i always stress to people that i talk to the students that i speak speak with you know it's so many people in this country have dreams of being professional athletes and i myself have been able to have a over 25 year career in professional sports without having been an athlete so there's other realms and avenues to get there and i think people are recognizing the value of an education in the sports world and the fact that there's other jobs and opportunities career-wise yeah just one last thing on that the course i took of his was a sport economic course and it was 
the best class I took all in college because it taught me economics through the lens of sports, which was perfect for my type of learning. And that's what our show is about. And we also like to look at some of the other areas of sports and management and business and legal uh, issues and give sort of an insight as to the way things work that not about the games in particular, but what happen in the background of those games and cause those games to be played at the level they're played at. And we're going to turn gears and switch directions right now and say hello to Jim Manos. Jim was the director of player personnel for the Buffalo Bills. He was a scout previously, a college football scout with the New Orleans Saints and the Philadelphia Eagles. Welcome to Colton Court, Jim. Thanks for joining us. Guys, how you doing? This is awesome. Jim is down in Charleston, South Carolina, and hopefully enjoying a nice summer down there. A rare summer off for you, right? Well, hey, that was the key word you used, was former director of player personnel. You know, the toughest part of my day is what time am I leaving the beach, what am I going to eat, and then what time am I going to go to bed? I'm sorry life is so hard in Charleston right now. You know, everyone everyone always feels so sorry for the guy who got fired. And Jim and, and Doug Welley, the general manager under which he worked in Buffalo, were dismissed right after the NFL draft. But it doesn't sound like life is so bad post-employment. Well, I think once you get in this line of work, you know it's a possibility. And you have to be ready. You, you can't look at the negative of it. You have to learn what did you learn from it. And when, what's your next step? And, you know, I'm taking the approach, next chapter will be the best chapter. But you have to take time and take a step back and reflect a little bit and figure out your next move. Jim, you know, you, you the one thing that is always said is, you know, general managers, personnel directors are hired to be fired. That you can, the one thing you can count on generally is at some point you're going to be dismissed. So the reality is that that's what's happened. And we, we have two recent firings of NFL general, general managers, and both who have had tremendous success in short stints. And that was Dave Gettleman with the Carolina Panthers and John Dorsey with the Kansas City Chiefs. And so I guess no one's ever real secure in the NFL. Well, Gerald, you've been in this longer than I have, and, and I mean, the timing of those two is definitely, I thought, unique. Um, I would think you would feel the same way. And it's really, you know, it's a case by team by team almost. You don't really know what's going on unless you're there. And it, it's hard to guess and figure out. Everybody wants to know, but really nobody knows unless you're there. So, Jim, and, and I appreciate that. What I really wanted to get into with you and discuss with you was a little bit about your career background, but I also want to discuss sort of the inner workings of an NFL club, or at least the ones that you experienced, and how the selection of personnel through both the draft as well as free agency works and what goes into cutting down of rosters. So let's just start with, you, were, you came out of Bloomsburg University, and how did you get your career started? Well, I was listening to your guys' show, and, and you know, it was, it was pretty interesting to hear all the different, you know, you were talking about different areas of sports and how you can get in. And I was a journalism major at Bloomsburg University and was able to get an internship with the Philadelphia Eagles. Um, Tom Modrak, who just passed away this year, hired me as an intern and then was uh, fortunate enough I was hired full-time with the Eagles as an area scout. And I met you, you know, I met you through there. through, And then that's another big part is networking. But, yeah, I mean, I was a journalism major, got my internship, public relations intern with the Eagles, and then the Eagles hired me as a personnel intern and then area scout. Jim, I like to tell the story. Our, our first guest on our first Colton Court was a player named Jari Evans that I know you're quite familiar with. And I like to tell the story <laughs> about how you actually helped me, me – 
land Jerry Evans as a client and uh, and then wound up switching teams and being where he landed as well as a player. Why don't, why don't you touch on, on the history of your career? So once you left Philadelphia, where did you go then? It was so fun. So I was hired by the New Orleans Saints and, and you know, unbelievable uh, eight years working for a first-class organization like that. And it all started the first draft that I worked there. Um, Jairi was draft eligible. And, you know, my dad was his offensive coordinator at Bloomsburg. Um, known Jairi since he was a freshman. And it was just really cool to see him handle the process and really elevate his game from a, you know, a kid from Philly. Didn't know, he didn't know what his future was going to be. I remember tell, talking to him at Bloomsbury about, do you realize you're going to be in the NFL? And he was like, you know, I, I want to, but is that really a possibility? And sure enough, he just, you just have to give him all the credit in the world. His work ethic and just desire is what set him apart from everybody, and obviously his talent. Jim, he's but, about um, to. Yeah, he, I mean, that goes to show you, too. Oh, yeah, go ahead. No, well, he's a, he's about to enter his 12th year in the NFL, um, of which he started ever since he, he entered. He played the first 11 in New Orleans, and now he's going to be with the Green Bay Packers. But it really is incredible. He's an incredible story. I mean, this is a kid who really didn't even get a college football scholarship, went to Bloomsburg an academic scholarship. And I have felt for a long time that you were one of the best judges of talent, which is really what goes into being a great scout and a great personnel guy in the league and Jari you said he could be an NFL starter I think he exceeded everyone's expectations everyone's I mean I can remember to be quite honest I can remember talking with the Saints saying I you know I don't think he'd be ready to play his first year he had so long to go and yeah sure enough he started every game What's so, long- I mean you still don't know until a guy gets in that situation but well, it's a long way from Division Two Bloomsburg to the NFL, but he sure he sure shortcutted that that route and and the dominance that he showed in college playing against kids that were two hundred ten pounds. He kept doing it three against three hundred pound guys in the NFL right away. Yeah, I think when we reflect back on everything, we'll, we'll look at him as probably one of the, the better stories you could ever see. So, and I want to I want to talk about him and his draft class. So, you arrive in New Orleans in two thousand six, right? And uh, yeah, and, and fall five. Right? Okay, well, fall of 05, scouting for the two thousand six NFL draft, and the New Orleans Saints had never been a real successful team in the league at that point. But that two thousand six draft became not only one of the best drafts in NFL history to me, it also catapulted the New Orleans Saints to a tremendous decade, which included a Super Bowl champion. Talk about that draft and your first year in New Orleans. It's one we all still talk about when we see each other. Um, Everybody that worked there and even the players still talk about it, and some of them are still playing, which is crazy. But you talk about Reggie Bush, who, say what you want, was a big reason we won a Super Bowl. Um, Roman Harper still playing up until this year right now, but I mean, Pro Bowl type safety from Alabama. Then you had Jairi in the fourth round. Rob Ninkovich, who nobody talks about that we drafted and actually released, but he had has, I don't know if he's even on the team. I think he's still playing, but Zach Streif still playing. Marcus Colston was a seventh round pick. So you're talking about, I mean, just unbelievable round by round. You can sit there. We had a debate in the seventh round of that draft. And you got to give credit to Mickey Loomis, the general manager, Sean Payton. We were debating on picking Marcus Colston or Miles Austin, who was from Monmouth um, in Jersey. 
And that, that was the, that was who we were debating on drafting with that pick. And we took Colston. We would have, you know, probably would have been good either way. But Colston was a great fit for us. Well, that's tremendous. And, and I mean, Colston also a small school kid from Hofstra. So um, Hofstra, right? It's uh, pr- pretty amazing. And, and and he's a local guy. And, and both he and Jari, who were part of that 2006 class, so Colston's from the Harrisburg, Pennsylvania area. Jari from Philadelphia yeah. are both part owners of the Philadelphia Souls. So they've continued to be teammates after their after at least Colson's playing career is over and Jerry has gone on to another team. But what a group that was. And then uh, four years later, of course, you won the Super Bowl. I have a question for Tucker, if I could. Go ahead. We're talking a little NBA Summer League I heard early in the show. Yep. And my question is, does Melo Trimble have any chance of making an NBA roster? I thought he... I'm a big Maryland basketball fan. I thought he looked good um, that one of those last games there in the summer league. He did look good. And with this Sixers team right now, it's tough. They have Fultz at point guard. They have McConnell point guard. They have Jared Bayless. And then Ben Simmons, most likely, they're going to have him playing point guard. So there's already four point guards on the 15-man roster, which, which makes it pretty difficult. So if he does, I don't think it's with Philadelphia. But you're a scout. You Seventh round, you took Colson. He becomes the all-time leading receiver for a franchise. Most of these guys just need an opportunity, and I was fortunate to be around Trimble enough to see that he can shoot, he can play defense, he could play off the dribble. I think if he's given the right chance, he can definitely catch on somewhere. I think he'll start off in the D-League, but eventually he'll get that chance, and hopefully he could capitalize on it. He was an awesome player at Maryland, and you saw that, and hopefully that could carry over to the next level. Jim, is it incredible? What I'm not an NBA. <laughs> well, these guys are no, such a good amazing. thing. I'm not an NBA yeah. scout because, yeah, Tucker, you broke that down better than I could. I when he was a freshman at Maryland, I thought he was going to save the university. You know, top ten pick. I didn't think there was anything he could do wrong, but you know, it's just it's so hard to make it in the NBA. And it's just incredible how good these athletes are right now. They're somewhat expanding rosters to sort of be able to fit more of these guys. But the bottom line is there are so many tremendous basketball players. Fortunately for them, Jim, as opposed to the NFL players, these guys at least have a shot to go to a D-league to develop their game or go overseas and play and make some money. That that doesn't exist in the NFL. It's all or nothing in the NFL. But let's, let's switch back now to your career, though. So you left... New Orleans for Buffalo, and it was after after a very successful run in New Orleans, mm-hmm. um, talk about how you got to Buffalo and what your position was there. So you go back to the whole networking part of the business that we were talking about. Doug Whaley was always a, a professional and friend of mine off you know off the field. We say, and uh, he got promoted to GM and asked me to be his right hand man, director of personnel, and I was honored. And couldn't wait to to learn and learn under him and just be a part of that and the experience. The four years in Buffalo was great. I don't have hard feelings because you learn so much and you get to experience everything at the highest level. So I'm getting ready. I'm walking away from this right now thinking, I mean, I feel confident that I can do that job. I feel confident to be a general manager someday, but if not, I got to do it. I got a good run. Well, you know, and and you even ran this year's draft, which just took place a couple of months ago. Um, I'm sure you'll be watching Buffalo with a lot of interest as to how the players you put together perform even after you're gone. It, you do. You, you know, that's just the business. You're always paying attention to all your picks. You want to be right on everything. You're never going to be right on all of them. But you pay attention to the other picks from other teams, too, guys that you had interest in that you just didn't have a chance to draft. And you also follow them closely to see how they play. So, Jim, in your role as 
director of personnel. So you're, you're right under Doug Whaley, the general manager. But talk, let's talk about how NFL offices are structured. You've got your college side and your pro side. You as the director of personnel, you're overseeing both sides, right? You do. And, and really, at the end of the day, you are part of the final decision-making process. So you, you, need, you need your directors of pro scouting, your directors of college scouting to really be strong, to have everything organized. So efficient-wise, time-wise, you know, you, need to, you don't want to waste time looking at players that your scouts or your directors have already said they don't think can play for your team. So you need to, you know, you need to trust them in that so you are always watching guys that they've already identified as possible prospects. Just for our listeners who, who wouldn't necessarily know the inner workings, how do you actually prepare and then go through the NFL draft? It's an, it, starts, it starts in May. It starts right away after the draft where all teams belong to a national scouting service or a Blesto scouting service. And, and those get you kind of get your schedule lined up, what schools you're going to be hitting. Obviously, you're going to hit all the big schools, but it gives you an idea of all the small schools you need to pay attention to, especially for your area scouts. And it's a whole year process. I mean, there's a reason the draft's not till the end of April. I mean, it takes that much time to get the board right, to really spend the time to get to know the players, see them at the All-Star Games, see them at the Combine, interview them, get them to your facility, spend more time with them, talk to all the coaches you can. And then, by then, you feel confident on making the selection. So in your role as a scout, which you did for about a decade, right, um, you're putting together that information, but you're not making the decisions. When you become that director of personnel, now you're participating in that decision-making. How much of a difference does that become? Well, it's a major difference because now now you're, you know, you, this is what you're getting paid to do. You're getting paid to make final decisions along with the general manager, whoever the team's final decision-maker is. And you have to have the confidence in your, your abilities to scout to be able to stand up and say, yes, we should pick him. And that's not everybody can do that. I've noticed that over the years where it's some people can ride the fence and some people are, are more, hey, take him, don't take him. So what happens on draft day? Draft day, the work is done. Draft day should be fun. The first round is always fun. The first round can be intense. The trades, the movement, you know, those, that round is intense. But the work is done. The board is set. You should have your stack how you like it. You shouldn't be scrambling on draft day. That should be your time to really get excited to see who you are going to select and see, you know, we always call it like a bubble of flares as you get closer to the pick. Who's the bubble of five guys that are going to be there when you pick? And and that's that's the good part. You know, it's the, the work is done. But leading up to that, you have some long nights. <laughs> But when you're in one of your early drafts and early time in Buffalo, you made a big draft day trade to to move up and take Sam Watkins. Right, that was my first the first draft that we were part of in Buffalo. Doug Willis, GM, um, and I'm I'm really looking forward to seeing if Sammy can stay healthy and, and really what he can do. And you know he's been in a different you know it's unfortunate like you were talking about the developmental league. I mean, here's a kid. He's still young. I mean, he was 20 years old when we drafted him. So he's played with different coordinators. I think it's three offensive coordinators already, you know, a million different quarterbacks. It's not the ideal situation for a number one receiver. But if he can stay healthy, I really do think his skill set should shine this year. How much pressure was there in that first draft? I mean, you made, you made a pretty big trade, a bold move to do that. The, the thinking back then was, that we needed to get the year before the Bills drafted E.J. Manuel. Right or wrong, that was going to be the quarterback. 
at the time. And we really felt that to get him a number one receiver was a big thing. And we all felt strongly that Sammy would be that guy, and that's why we tried to go up for him. You know, it's funny. We mentioned Jari Evans before, and Jari just got his executive MBA from Miami as part of a really good NFL NFLPA program that allows the players to further their education while playing and, and during the offseason. It's a great program. But one of his classmates and fellow graduates was EJ Manuel, and I got to know him a little bit. What a terrific guy. Can't comment on him as a quarterback, but what a wonderful person. Exactly. He's a great person, and, and I hope he does well in Oakland. Yeah, he's, he's moved on, but he's got his NBA to fall back on now, as, yeah. well, as well as some dollars earned in the yeah. NFL. Um, so one of the things that the, the public would never know about is what goes on as the draft is winding down and then ends. You've got a whole lot of other things you've got to do as, as a personnel director at that point, don't you? Yeah, as far as when the draft ends. Yes, what happens in that immediate immediate frenzy? Describe that frenzy for people that they don't even know exists. <laughs> you, uh, you you say it like I mean you know it. That's why I was laughing. It is the frenzy is a great word. Um, you try to say organized chaos. You try to do the best you can to um, make it go smoothly. And I, I felt like this year we you know I thought our scouts and I thought everybody did a really good job of of um, get really I really think that's the scouts' time to shine. I mean, you would hope you hope after the draft that they have undrafted players that they are excited about, that they have lined up, that they know their agents or they've been in contact with, and that you hope on the other side that the agents are doing their job and seeing what teams they fit best with. And usually, you know, if you do the work and you know people and you're making calls ahead of time, those things happen pretty fast because you should know who you're trying to get. Hey, Jim Tucker, I got a question for you now. Um, so with the draft, obviously, it's a big part of how teams are able to build for the future and compete in the now. How much being in the position that you were in, how much pressure is there to select right? Because the guys that you pick are most likely going to have to play at least for a year or two just to prove themselves. So how much pressure is there with every pick? I, I've always said I, I can't. I always believe that every pick you make, you hope that guy's playing that first year. I mean. There's all of those theories. All, only the first, second rounders should play. The other guys should be backups. If you take the approach that you're really trying to find guys to help you right away and, and see the teams, and, and you have to factor need in sometimes, especially I think later in the rounds where if you're short at linebacker, if you have, you know don't have great depth at linebacker, well, there's a linebacker or two that you like. If you take those guys, they're going to be playing for you, and hopefully they're playing well. But you're right. There's a lot. Every time you make a pick, that guy is – they get scrutinized. It doesn't matter what round they're in. As soon as they're on that practice field, he was drafted. He better be playing. We are speaking with Jim Monis, the former personnel director of the Buffalo Bills and truly one of the finest football talent evaluators I've ever known. And, and Jim, as we wind down, I want to switch gears to the pro personnel side because um, that's a big part of the job as well. Talk about how the pro personnel side works and what goes into free agency. The pro personnel, was, that was a fun part for me to um, really get to experience because I hadn't done a lot of it leading up to my experience with the Bills. And I really enjoyed getting to learn how you target players and not necessarily just going after the, you know, there's certain guys I think we all, oh, yeah, of course you're going to want whoever the big name free agent is. But that doesn't, that history of that doesn't always pan out. How do you get, how do you get down and dirt? How do you find the, we, 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 our first year, we really thought we did a nice job with a guy named Corey Graham who we signed, who he played corner for us. He was a 
He was a heck of a veteran leader. He came in and just added toughness, special teams value. I mean, that those are the guys sometimes you get excited about too, just like you do a, a mid-round pick or something like that. It's it's It still has a draft feel to it where you're trying to find who's the value pick in free agency. You know, it's funny, Jim. I've been doing the representation of athletes working as an agent in the NFL for over 25 years, and I've gotten to know most of the pro personnel directors pretty well through that time period because when you have guys that don't make NFL rosters then or, and are cut or on the street – the pro personnel guys have to know who's out there and who they need to bring in when someone goes down with injury or is not performing well. That's a big part of the job too, isn't it? Oh, it's constant. I mean, we sit there on game day and it's, I mean, we, as soon as there's an injury, you know, we have our list right away. We, you know, Doug, you know, GM or director of personnel right away. You're on the phone to your director of pro scouting. Hey, let's get these, get the top three guys in for a workout. You know, it's instant. And you, they have to be – those three guys have to be ready to roll. Like the names, numbers, we just – it's instant. Jimmy. So that part of it is – is very organized, yeah. You know, you hit on something that, that I feel has is a black mark on my soul, and that is I, I try to watch, you know, as much of the NFL as possible, usually at a spot where I can watch pretty much every game going on on a Sunday. When I have guys on the street and you watch guys go down with injury, I know that you guys as personnel directors, your, your phones start getting all these texts from agents all over telling them that their guy's ready and available, right? It's unbelievable. I feel like sometimes I get texts from it, from an agent before I even know the guy was hurt. Yeah, you know, and you, like, you hate you know, to root for like, injury. Yeah. <laughs> it's a terrible, terrible thing. Yeah, well, you might, because you guys, I know, but you guys might see somebody, you know, limp off the field, you know, and you don't know if it's a major injury or not, so you're doing your job by texting us, and then our trainers might say, hey, he's fine, he'll be back in the fourth quarter. You know, and we're like, okay, but, I mean, it's amazing how on top of it sometimes you guys are as far as, hey, my guy's here, he's available. Well, if I'm not on top of it, my player's going to be on top of it, so I better be on top of it <laughs> so, because I get, I, I get it up. I'm sure you'll hear from them right away. Yep. <laughs> it's, it's, it's unbelievable. Listen, thank you so much for spending some time with us talking about the various different things that go on in an NFL front office that, that fans might not actually really think about or be aware of. And I hope maybe you can join us some future day because there's a lot more to talk about with you always. I would, I would love to do it again, guys. Thanks, Jim. Enjoy the beach in Charleston, and hopefully I'll see you before too long. Take care, Jim. See you soon. Come down and get some barbecue. <laughs> Sounds good. Take care. That's Jim Manos, right. the former hey, director of personnel for the Buffalo Bills, and he will surface again in the NFL. He is really an incredible scout, Tucker. Yeah, he's – I mean, you don't get to where he got by not being a great scout and having great – he said it early, great network of people to know, and – he started out as a public relations intern, and here he is running the personnel for NFL organization. Yep, but there there really is a talent to scouting talent, and I learned early on when he was an area scout for the Philadelphia Eagles doing the Northeast. And in general, the NFL teams assign their either youngest, generally least experienced, and somebody not necessarily their best scout to the Northeast to sort of learn the business. And the reason they picked the Northeast region is in, in the in – the, 
world of college football, the Northeast generally historically has the least talent just by virtue of the fewest schools and the few and the way the conferences are. Your your best talent is in the Southeast region, which has the Southeast Conference, the ACC, mid down in the Texas areas, the Big Twelves, and then out west in the Pac-12s type and a few other a few other areas of the country. But the Northeast sort of gets that worst scout. And Jim really proved to be an amazing scout and then rose in the world of professional football to a director of personnel. Yeah, well, he was able to, he was in a position where he could improve himself. So he was able to work real hard, long days, even set long nights throughout the year, even in the off season, whenever he's working and made himself better. And in turn, was able to accomplish many things that people hope to. And he was able to be put in some positions with a lot of trust. And at this point, we're going to switch gears once again, and we're going to go to our weekly segment of Colton Court, guilty or not guilty. And um, there's a few things to throw in and talk about for this week, as there always are. I want to start with something that we touched on with Professor Maxey earlier on, and that was the signing by the Boston Celtics of Gordon Hayward. So free agency starts. The NBA clubs anticipate that the salary cap is going to be $101 million. That's the estimate that they got. So it starts with the negotiation period. The Celtics go out and make the bold move and make an agreement with Gordon Hayward to give him a max contract, the most money they could possibly give him. And that was for an average of, uh, it, it's a four-year $127 million. So an average of almost $32 million a year. And he's going to make this move after spending his entire career in Utah. He's now going to go and reunite with his college coach in Boston and take a team that went to the Eastern Conference Finals and hopefully put it over the top. So they're adding a huge piece to an already existing great team. Then lo and behold, the NBA comes out, and after they get all the final numbers, which include the NBA Finals not going seven games, so they got less money anticipated in the revenues, and instead of the cap being $101 million, it's only $99 million. And now the Celtics, who have made this agreement, either need Hayward to take less money or have to get rid of a big piece of their team, and they want up having to trade Avery Bradley. They dump him for Marcus Morris, nowhere near the player, after even throwing a second-round pick. And it really is a, a move that could hurt their chances. So they're adding this huge piece to hopefully take a, a finalist, conference finalist over the top, and instead they lose a critical piece at the time, too. Yeah, and the big thing about Bradley is people around the league know him as one of the best defenders in the league. And Obviously, you're trying to compete with the Warriors and the Cavaliers being in the East. So you need someone to be able to lock someone down. Now that you have Hayward to score to complement Thomas, Horford was good as a big man. They need that primary defender, and unfortunately, they had to get rid of him since they made the mishap with the cap. So we have three issues in front of Colton Court right now. One, is the NBA guilty for giving a bad estimate to its clubs that they're relying on to negotiate with these free agents. And then when the official number comes and the time comes to actually sign just a few days later, there's a big discrepancy. So guilty or not guilty for the NBA, we're going to go over. The Boston Celtics, are they guilty of making a bad miscalculation in their negotiations with Hayward that cost them a, a critical piece of their club? And then guilty or not guilty for Gordon Hayward for refusing to take less money than they agreed upon so that they could keep Avery Bradley and have that team together. So let's go through them one at a time. Let's go NBA first. Is, are they guilty or not guilty for giving their clubs false information? I would have liked to know the details of how they told the teams what the estimated revenue was and what went into it. And if they said, if the NBA Finals goes seven games and this is it, versus if it goes five, or what methods they used to calculate however they did. And 
since it seems like they probably provided as much information as possible and to why it was $101 million, I'm going to say the NBA is not guilty. And I think they are guilty because of the fact that it was proliferated throughout the basketball world that the cap was going to be $101 million. And, and you're correct. If they gave it sort of the qualifier that, hey, we're not exactly sure, it might be less. But I know teams are relying on that $101 million figure. So we're going to find Adam Silver guilty in the NBA for giving out false information. Next one is the Boston Celtics. Guilty or not guilty for relying on what the NBA told them. Yeah, I think they are guilty. They're spending money that they don't have. And simply put, you can't do that. And they ultimately got the short end of the stick in the end. Which, as a longtime diehard Philadelphia 76er supporter, I'm not sorry to see. By the same token, um, you know, that that goes back to your premise with the NBA. What exactly were the Celtics told? But this is a drastic miscalculation by them. And whether they relied on good information or not, they're guilty of making a big mistake in, in the signing of Gordon Hayward that also cost them Avery Brad at the same time. Not guilty for signing Hayward, but for not being able to work this out to where they did not have to lose a critical piece of that team. Yeah, and especially in the sense that they had all these draft picks and there were the rumors that they were going to trade for a bunch of different players, most notably Jimmy Butler or Paul George, and they would have come in at a lower price than Gordon Hayward did. So I, I got to hold them guilty on this. And then the last one is Hayward himself. Hayward signs for $127,829,000 and some change. So um, a lot of people would like just that 829000 <laughs> the, the number yeah. that's behind the first comma that, that comes after the one twenty seven. I mean, obviously, that's a lot of money. It's an all-guaranteed contract and uh, makes Hayward... An incredibly wealthy young man. He is a great player, and um, no one's no one's disagreeing with his right under today's current NBA to get that kind of money. But that's a thirty-two million dollar a year contract. Could he have taken? And and the figure I I saw was something like six hundred thousand less a year for to allow them to keep Avery Bradley. Is he guilty of being greedy and costing the Celtics, or is he not guilty because that's a contract he agreed to? Could he have? Yes. Is he guilty? No. I don't think he's guilty for taking the money that he's worked his whole life to earn. This was his big payday. He went to college for a few years. He wasn't one of those one-and-done guys. And he wanted to play with his college coach, so it's not like the market was not there for him. He was going to get this money wherever he went. Well, he, you know, he's making almost $32 million a year, so he would have had to take like $31,400,000 a year. So, God, it would have been tough to get by on that. But by the same token, the fact is he left Utah to take this max contract. I think that he and his people felt that, look, we can't then take a pay cut on what we agreed to when we're really leaving Utah um, and, and justifying it through a lot of different means, um, as well as, look, it, it's an agreement. This, and, and I am all for players getting all they can get. We have seen, though, some players take less. For years, the San Antonio Spurs were able to maintain their level of excellence by players taking less money to remain there. And we saw Kevin Durant actually take less money to remain with the Golden State Warriors. So players have taken less. They're still making huge money. Could they, should they have taken less? Remains to be seen, or, or that's, that's a matter of opinion. I'm going to give Hayward a not guilty, but that's because I'm glad that he did it, again, with my loyalty to the Philadelphia 76ers. We will. So, so that was a guilty for the NBA, guilty for the Celtics, not guilty for Hayward, uh, for, at least in my judgment. I know you, you found this, the Celtics maybe not guilty, but let's go on now to the next uh, 
person to appear. Next item on our docket is Ezekiel Elliott, the star running back of the Dallas Cowboys entering year two. And he just can't stay out of the news on off the field issues. It just surfaced that he got in a bar fight and may have broken someone's nose in the process. Not his first brush with some questionable activity. Right before or during training camp last year, they had an exhibition game in one of the states that has legalized marijuana selling. And he was seen in one of those facilities where you can purchase it legally in that state, but still against NFL policy. Um, he had an incident over St. Patrick's Day where he pulled down a girl's shirt in public that was caught on video, and he's had other questionable activities. Uh, as we look at Ezekiel Elliott entering his second year, guilty or not guilty of the bad judgment here? He's got to be guilty. You have to know who you are in that situation. He's rookie of the year running back and probably going to be a pretty good candidate for the MVP this year with that offensive line and in that system. It's the offseason. It's not like he's playing games every week. He's got to keep low profile, get ready for training camp, and show up to be the player that he was last year. There's no reason for this to come out in the news. I I agree completely. He's absolutely guilty of a lot of things. Um, Bad judgment, at least, if not potentially criminal activity and and things where lawsuits are going to be involved and things like that, things that just don't look good for him in a lot of ways. But mostly in this day and age, at the level of money he makes and the level of fame and notoriety and the fact that everything's going to be on social media regardless, he's guilty of, I don't have any problem. They're going to training camp in a week. I have no problem with him going out with his friends, going to bars, going to clubs. These are young men. They are making a lot of money. They have the right to live and enjoy like anybody else. However, they have to recognize who they are, that they are a target, and that anything he does or steps out of line with will potentially have great uh, great repercussions for him. He's already facing a possible suspension over some of his other matters that are being reviewed by the NFL. I've heard previous, even to this new incident, that he was already looking at probably a two-game suspension anyhow. This is only going to compound it and ensure that there's at least some suspension, and it may be longer. He's at least guilty of not surrounding himself with the right people and probably security guards with him at all times to make sure that things like this cannot and will not happen. And I am, if, if he were my client, there is no chance this would happen because I'd never let him be in that situation. Well, how about, do you think the Cowboys are guilty? Or they're the, we talked about this. They're the uh, most, they have the most money of any franchise. They're the most valuable franchise in all of sports. Do you well, think they're held accountable at all for him being in this situation? I know Jerry Jones in the past has supplied security guards for some of his players to make sure they're protected mostly against themselves. Um, And in this case, obviously, the franchise has to make sure. Now, this guy's not in Dallas right now, I don't believe. You know, he's it's it's not season yet. It's not reporting date yet. Um, You know, do you have to supply security everywhere you go or is it the player's responsibility? But the clubs themselves have to protect their assets as best possible. Ezekiel Elliott is a key asset of the Dallas Cowboys as they try to make a run at the Super Bowl. So maybe they have to step it up a little bit on their own. Last issue, real quickly. We just talked about the big three. Allen Iverson is a major part of that big three. They played in Philadelphia. Allen Iverson is an icon here. He just has to walk in a building and people go crazy. They can sell out just to see him and witness him. However, a lot of people on a July Sunday spent some pretty good money to go watch the big three. And it's mostly, you know, retired, it's all retired players, but mostly guys who can still play a little bit, but they wouldn't necessarily be a draw. Most of those people were in a building to see Allen Iverson. He gave a nice little speech, but he coached and didn't play, and he only announced it right beforehand through social media that he wasn't going to play. Guilty of anything, is he? I say not guilty. I saw a tweet from Ice Cube, who runs the league, and it said that Iverson was told not to leave his bed by doctors that morning. So 
it's it's a shame that he didn't play, but he wasn't even supposed to be there in the first place, and he wanted to be there so he could represent for Philadelphia and be there for the fans that he knew paid to see him. And unfortunately, he didn't play, but he's not guilty of not playing because he physically was unable to. As we discussed the big three earlier, it's, it's a lot better practice than I thought it should be. It, it surprised me. By the same token, Allen Iverson's not very good anymore. And I think there may be a component that he says, I don't want to step on a court in Philadelphia where I'm the player I am now and tarnish the memories where I was one of the greatest pieces of this franchise history and where I'm beloved. So even though... It caused maybe a little bad PR yesterday or during when the big three was here. Um, overall, I don't think he wants to touch that image that makes him really a god in Philadelphia forever, if, as long as he can at least show up and please the fans by waving to them and cupping his ear and telling them he loves them. Anyway, we've covered a lot of areas on today's Colton Court. Joel Maxey joined us, the professor from of sports management at Drexel University. Jim Miles, the former personnel director of the Buffalo Bills, and we touched on a lot of other areas. Tucker? Thanks for joining us. Of course. Thanks for having me. Have a good evening, everyone. So for Tucker Colton, this is Gerald Colton saying thanks for listening to Colton Court. Court's adjourned. Court's adjourned.